Hello, this is the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to Part 6 of the Hobbit Lecture Series. At the end of the last lecture, we were looking at the differences between Bilbo's unhappiness about their prospects at the mountain and the dwarves' perspective. Thorin and the dwarves were getting caught up in the enthusiasm and optimism in Lake Town, and although this excitement does seem to be given some weight of portent and prophecy, it is nevertheless rather short-sighted. I suggested before that the continued tempering of Bilbo's now quite accomplished and well-developed Tookish side, with his Bagginsish good sense, led him to view their situation with more wisdom than either his dwarven companions or his human hosts. The words and actions of the dwarves in the next few chapters will do little to change our minds about this. The party's approach to the mountain, towering grim and tall before them, seems to validate all of Bilbo's gloominess. The dwarves' premature celebrations fade quickly, for there was no laughter or song or sound of harps, and the pride and hopes which had stirred in their hearts at the singing of old songs by the lake died away to applauding gloom. Even the lakemen who accompany them experience the same reality check, for it was easier to believe in the dragon and less easy to believe in Thorin in these wild parts. All seem to realize now what Bilbo seemed to feel from the first moment he saw the mountain looming in the distance, that the end of their journey might be a very horrible end. The dwarves' hopes and high spirits have been thoroughly punctured by the sight of the desolation of the dragon, and it now seems that those hopes were rather hollow. They face a sad and deflating irony, the fact that they were at the end of their journey, but as far as ever it seemed from the end of their quest, none of them had much spirit left. We see the same pattern played out again when they find the location of the secret door. Although their spirits had risen a little when they find the path, later they sank into their boots. The dwarves won't give up and go home. They're very stubborn and determined, but during these chapters they are often at a loss and fall to doing absolutely nothing. In their time on the side of the mountain, the dwarves show themselves to be not only changeable in mood, but downright foolish. When Bilbo brings them the golden cup from Smaug's hoard, the dwarves start talking delightedly of the recovery of their treasure. But as soon as they hear the rumblings of the dragon's anger in the mountain beneath them, they forgot their joy and their confident boasts of a moment before and cowered down in fright. The dwarves often seem to swing quickly from one extreme of emotion to another, with little evidence of any rational consideration. At this moment, the narrator observes rather laconically that it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. A wry reminder that emphasizes the short-sightedness of the dwarves, not only in their celebration of the actually rather meaningless delivery of the Golden Cup, but also back in Lake Town. How thoroughly the dwarves have left the dragon out of their calculations becomes immediately apparent as soon as the dragon attacks. Although they've been talking about reclaiming their harps and gold from the dragon and about bringing their curses home to Smaug ever since chapter one, they seem to have made no concrete plans whatsoever about dealing with the dragon. When he actually appears, they're completely paralyzed. Their response is immediate despair. They lament that the dwarves left behind in the valley will be slain, and all our ponies too, and all our stores lost. We can do nothing, they said hopelessly. Later on, the narrator informs us that the dwarves could think of no way of getting rid of Smaug, and that Bilbo felt inclined to point out that this had always been a weak point in their plans. As readers, we might find this just a bit of an understatement. I mean, they seem almost never to have thought about this at all. Their whole strategy was to find this secret entrance into the mountain, but what were they planning to do then? Now they are really in the tunnel, and it's clear they have absolutely no ideas. Now, the story doesn't just present the dwarves as a bunch of idiots. We're not laughing at them the whole time. 
There are several moments when the dwarves are set up for special praise, and actually do look admirable, and it's important to notice these and to counterbalance these against those moments when the dwarves seem silly and foolish. During the dragon attack, when the rest of the dwarves are paralyzed with fear and despair, Thorin really does rise to the occasion. Thorin, recovering his dignity, really does act like a leader for the first time since they started the last stage of their adventure. He tells Bilbo and Feely and Keeley to go inside the tunnel, proclaiming, The dragon shan't have all of us. This is genuinely noble and self-sacrificing, really one of the finest moments for Thorin's character in the whole book, I think. Less grand, but even more moving, is Balin's support of Bilbo, his accompanying Bilbo down the tunnel the first time, and even more his spontaneous expression of affection upon seeing Bilbo's safe return. We're told that Balin was overjoyed to see the Hobbit again, and as delighted as he was surprised. Balin's effusiveness in picking Bilbo right up and carrying him triumphantly out of the tunnel is quite heartwarming. It's clear that we're not supposed to really dislike or despise the dwarves, but while Bilbo's character has changed tremendously from the hobbit we met in the early chapters, the dwarves on the mountainside are not, as a whole, really much different from the comic troop we saw in the early stages of the journey, the dwarves who stepped cluelessly into the troll camp one by one and weaponless back in chapter 2. Bilbo, on the other hand, continues to change and grow. The separation between Bilbo's reaction and the dwarves that we noticed back in Lake Town only becomes more noticeable as they arrive at the mountain. The same Baggins-ish perspective, grounded in simple reality and not carried away by imagination that kept Bilbo from getting swept up in the enthusiasm at Lake Town, now prevents him from falling into the gloomy thoughts that oppress the dwarves as they approach the mountain. The dwarves seem almost paralyzed by the thought that they are alone in the perilous waste without hope of further help, but Bilbo's more practical. He approaches the situation as a problem, almost as a riddle to be solved. Bilbo would often borrow Thorin's map and gaze at it, pondering over the runes and the message of the moon letters Elrond had read. The dwarves are entirely impractical, and seem almost to lack the ability to think for themselves at all at some points. We're told that it was Bilbo that made the dwarves begin the dangerous search on the western slopes for the secret door. So they wouldn't even have started looking for the door, which has been the whole point of their journey from the beginning, if Bilbo hadn't prodded them? Bilbo's more practical perspective, this Baggin sensibleness applied in Tookish circumstances that we looked at in the previous lecture, is almost the only thing moving the quest along at this point. We can see a very similar difference between Bilbo's good sense and the dwarves' impracticality when they're exploring the dragon's hoard in Chapter 13, after Smaug's departure. Once again, Bilbo's feelings are out of step with those of the dwarves, for just when the dwarves were most despairing, Bilbo felt a strange lightening of the heart, as if a heavy weight had gone from under his waistcoat. And once again, of course, Bilbo is right, and the dwarves are wrong in their feelings and reactions. The difference in their perspectives shows up even more clearly, however, when Bilbo interrupts their exploration of the treasure a bit later. While the dwarves are still admiring the harps of gold and the goblets they carved there for themselves that they sang their song about way back in chapter 1, Bilbo is again being practical, thinking that he would give a good many of these precious goblets for a drink of something cheering out of one of Bjorn's wooden bowls. When he speaks up, he immediately punctures the dwarves' excitement and calls them back to immediate realities. What next? We are armed, but what good has any armor ever been before against Smaug the Dreadful? This treasure is not yet won back. We are not looking for gold yet, but for a way of escape. Notice that there are different levels on which Bilbo is attempting to get his companions to think more clearly. One is simply a reminder that they're getting distracted. 
A few minutes ago, they were in despair because they were trapped in the mountain, facing what seemed the choice between starving to death in the tunnel and being killed by the dragon. Now, they have found an unexpected chance of escape from this death trap, and they're squandering it playing with jewels and harps. The second level is an even grimmer one. The dwarves have, it seems, given in to the temptation to see this moment as the moment when they have arrived at their long-forgotten gold, an end in itself, a fulfillment of the quest that they sang about back in Bag End in Chapter 1. Bilbo is reminding them of exactly how unrealistic that is. Until Smaug the Dreadful is destroyed, they have not in any meaningful sense won their harps and gold from him— even arming themselves with the legendary craftsmanship of their forefathers doesn't significantly advance them in this project, as Bilbo points out. Their fathers, some of them quite likely wearing the very suits of armor in which the dwarves have now armed themselves, were mown down by Smaug. The dwarves may feel that this moment is enormously significant, that they have now, in a sense, really returned to their heritage. Thorin immediately starts referring to it as my palace, pointing to the great chamber of Thror, the hall of feasting and council, as they walk through what the narrator refers to as a ruined chamber, filled with charred benches, rotting tables, and scattered skulls and bones. When, after they emerge into the sunlight, Bilbo refers to it as a nasty, clockless, timeless hole, Thorin laughingly defends it, replying, "'Don't call my palace a nasty hole. You wait until it has been cleaned and redecorated.' Bilbo once more punctures Thorin's enthusiasm and fine dreams, replying, "'That won't be until Smaug is dead.' Once again, the dwarves are leaving a live dragon out of their calculations, but Bilbo refuses to do so." As a side note, I'd like to point out here how delightfully the title of chapter 13, Not at Home, works on several different levels. The simplest reference it makes is to the unexpected absence of Smaug, of course. But the turn of phrase conjures up the imagery of home, which is very much at issue in this chapter. When the dwarves, and especially Thorin, leave the tunnel and enter the mountain halls proper for the first time, they feel like they've come home. Bilbo is there to remind them that they are not yet at home. These halls are still Smaug's nasty hole, and not yet Thorin's kingdom at all. Thorin may think of it as his palace, but Bilbo reminds him of the true owner when he calls the front gate Smaug's front doorstep. Bilbo, of course, is quite certainly not at home. For the dwarves, this may be a homecoming, but for him it merely stands as the end point of his outward journey, the furthest he will ever get from his little hole, which is not a nasty, dirty hole, as you will recall, in his comfortable little hill. The contrast between the hill at the beginning of the journey and the mountain at the end of it, the one with a nice, safe hobbit hole under it and the other with a dragon's lair inside, is brought up several times in these chapters. Before the thrush knocks and the door opens, Bilbo sits on the doorstep and thinks, not of entering the mountain, but of returning to what lay beyond the blue distance, the quiet western land and the hill and his hobbit hole under it. The fact is, Bilbo never quite fits in with the dwarves. He's their companion, they accept him and even look to him for leadership, but he remains separate, not sharing either their experiences or their perspective. We're told in chapter 12 that Bilbo had become the real leader in their adventure— he had begun to have ideas and plans of his own. The first part of that statement we've seen ever since the spiders in Mirkwood. The second part contains a little piece of foreshadowing. Yes, he's getting ideas, but they will not always be like the dwarves' ideas, or even ideas that the dwarves will like very much. Now, there's another sense in which Bilbo is separate from the dwarves. The dwarves are on a quest of personal importance to them. Bilbo is merely a hired professional, a rather peculiar and unlikely kind of mercenary. 
Perhaps you remember the first time in their travels that Bilbo's professional status was invoked by the dwarves, that wet evening when they wanted to find out more about the troll's fire that they saw in the distance. After all, we have got a burglar with us, they said, emphasizing it a few minutes later by referring to Bilbo merely as the burglar rather than by name. On Smaug's back doorstep, and especially once the back door has opened, Bilbo prepares to fulfill his burglarious role, and, as Thorin says, perform the service for which he was included in our company. Bilbo may have become a good companion on their long road, but he is still not truly one of them. As the narrator explains, they had brought him to do a nasty job for them, and they didn't mind the poor little fellow doing it if he would. Bilbo is a hired hand, and he's finally come to the moment when he's asked to perform his official function. He has come to the culmination of his professional career. Bilbo himself is acutely conscious of the significance of this moment for the new burglarious identity that he has to some extent accepted. Indeed, he is actively involved in defining himself, in constructing his identity. You'll remember that his identity has to some extent been in question since chapter 1. Gandalf said he was a burglar, and insisted that it was so, despite the fact that he looked more like a grocer to Glowen. Ever since those early days, Bilbo has been trying to live up to that identification, sometimes with very dubious results, as in the encounter with the trolls. Now, in the Lonely Mountain, and even after his accomplishments in the Spider Colony and the Dungeons of the Elven King, Bilbo still recalls the dwarves' doubts of him back in Bag End, and he sets out to put all doubts about his professional competence to rest permanently. When he has stolen the golden cup from Smaug's hoard, right under the nose of the sleeping dragon, Bilbo reflects triumphantly on what this will do for his reputation among his companions. I've done it, he says to himself. This will show them. More like a grocer than a burglar, indeed. Well, we'll hear no more of that. And Bilbo gets the response he hopes for, for the dwarves praised him and patted him on the back and put themselves and all their families for generations to come at his service. As far as Bilbo's burglarious career is concerned, he has now definitely arrived. Indeed, he now certainly qualifies for consideration as a really first-class and legendary burglar. It would seem that his professional mission is accomplished. And yet this doesn't actually seem to be the case. For one thing, although the theft of the cup from the dragon's lair is a fine thing in itself and greatly appreciated by his dwarvish employers, this is an accomplishment that doesn't really accomplish anything. As Smaug maliciously, but accurately, points out in their later conversation, the cup is not much use on the mountainside. Indeed, the circumstances of Bilbo's ultimate performance of the job he was hired to do might lead us to question the point of the hire in the first place. What exactly did they want a burglar for? A burglar's job is to sneak into a home and steal things. But what can be accomplished by that in this situation? Later on, when the dwarves are terrified by Smaug's attack and grumbling at Bilbo for stealing the cup, Bilbo himself points out that if they wanted the whole treasure recovered by burglary, they ought to have brought 500 burglars, not one. The job that actually needs doing is not the pilfering of the treasure, but the slaying of the dragon. And that, as again Bilbo points out, is warrior's work. So, why did they bring a burglar with them in the first place? Now, before we're too quick to condemn the dwarves again for foolishness and bad planning, we should remember that bringing a burglar as a warrior or hero alternative was not the dwarves' idea. It was Gandalf's. He was the one who not only identified Bilbo as the chosen and selected burglar, but suggested burglary as an alternative to combat. 
What then was Gandalf's plan? What role did he envision a burglar playing at this juncture? Well, we can't see back inside Gandalf's head, but I think we can see something rather interesting when we look at the burglaries that Bilbo actually accomplishes in Smaug's lair. Although Bilbo himself might think at the time that his ultimately pointless theft of the cup is the culmination of his career, that burglary is soon eclipsed by a later action, which comes to stand as the true climax of his career as a burglar. I refer here to the theft of the Arkenstone. When he is running up the tunnel holding the golden cup, he may think that he has put the grosser comparison to rest for good, but it's when he tucks the glittering Arkenstone away in his deepest pocket that he thinks to himself, Now I am a burglar indeed. We'll have to wait for the next few chapters before we see what the burglary of the Arkenstone accomplishes, but I would say that Bilbo's interpretation of this moment is correct, and that it's here that he truly fulfills his role as burglar, even though he is ironically burgling his employers. The descent into Smaug's lair, however, is not only important for Bilbo professionally, it also amounts to a third turning point in Bilbo's life, a final moment of personal transformation. Bilbo puts on his ring, and he crept noiselessly down, 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 into the dark. The narrator emphasizes the complete darkness and solitude. All sign of the door had faded away. He was altogether alone. In fact, Bilbo is in a position distinctly similar to the situations that he found himself in at the two previous turning points in his career, the moment when he awoke alone in the darkness of the goblin tunnels and found the ring, and the moment when he awoke alone in the darkness except for the giant spider who was taking him prisoner. Once again, he is alone in the complete darkness, without friends, without aid, and facing a deadly enemy. The three moments taken together make for an interesting pattern. There's an escalation in Bilbo's danger and the hopelessness of his situation. First, he was lost in the dark in the mountains of the goblins, with danger around every corner, having finally to escape from a desperate and furious golem on his own. The second time, he was lost in the even more hopelessly impenetrable darkness of Mirkwood, having not only to somehow escape from his arachnid hunters, but to seek out their lair and rescue his friends. The third time, he must single-handedly invade the lair of an enormous fire dragon who destroyed whole kingdoms by himself. Fortunately for Bilbo, this third turning point will be the last one, or who knows what he might have faced. I don't know, maybe he'd have to travel alone with his servant into the heart of the Dark Lord's realm in order to chuck something into a volcano or something. Anyway, we should also notice that there has been an equal escalation in Bilbo's own engagement with these moments. The first time, Bilbo is relatively passive— not to downplay any of the enormously important decisions Bilbo made in Chapter 5, but as I've said before, he doesn't really do much. Mostly, he's preserved by the luck which leads him to find the ring, then to accidentally make it into the winning riddle, and finally to happen upon the knowledge of its power which helps him to escape. The second time, Bilbo takes action, not only looking at his sword and waving it around, but using it, and beginning to shape his course and become a leader. The third turning point is undertaken entirely by his own choice from the start. He doesn't fall asleep or get knocked out and wake up to find himself alone. This time, he deliberately turns his back on his friends and steps down into the darkness. The narrator emphasizes Bilbo's choice heavily, noting that going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did, and adding, the tremendous things that happened afterwards were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone. Despite all the escalation in his outward circumstances, the important thing about this third and final turning point is what goes on in Bilbo's own mind. Now, Bilbo has taken the final step. 
I think that the fascinating thing here is how complex Bilbo's character remains. Tolkien has not performed a simple character transformation. Perhaps Bilbo's initial trajectory might have led us to expect that. He starts off as a bumbling, fearful, stay-at-home Baggins, who has some latent, adventurous tookishness in him. In his first turning point, he begins to embrace that adventurousness, changing his mental image of himself. In his second turning point, he takes active steps and starts to become adventurous in action as well as thought. Now he is swashbuckler Bilbo, though still with residual Baggins-ish tendencies. Now, we might think, in the final moment of transformation, Bilbo sheds all lingering traces of his reserved, domestic Baggins side, embracing his destiny to become Bilbo Baggins, action hero, tough as nails, and a terror to his enemies. Actually, doesn't this sound creepily like Luke Skywalker's potential road to the dark side? Use your aggressive feelings, boy! Anyway, the point is that this is not what we see in Bilbo's final turning point. In this moment, when Bilbo is taking the boldest and most adventurous steps of his entire life, his mind is full of very Baggins-like thoughts. Rather than showing himself now coolly acclimated to this life of high adventure, Bilbo's thoughts dwell on how silly and pointless the whole thing is from a Baggins-ish perspective. I have absolutely no use for dragon-guarded treasures, he thinks to himself, and the whole lot could stay here forever if only I could wake up and find this beastly tunnel was my own front hall at home. Bilbo is taking the plunge and making the choice to fulfill his professional destiny, but in the moment he does it, he affirms his Baggins-ish values, stating that his own quiet front hall and the treasures of peace and safety and eggs and bacon, which lie at the end of it, are more valuable than the mountain of dwarfish gold and treasure that lies at the end of this tunnel. When Bilbo makes his final transformation, we find his Baggins-ish way of viewing things still intriguingly prominent in his mind. This is not, of course, to suggest that Bilbo has not really changed since chapter 1. These chapters in which Bilbo is coming to the end of his quest and what looks to be the climax of his story are sprinkled with recollections of chapter 1, which all serve to remind us just how far Bilbo has come. When the secret door opens, Thorin makes an impressive speech, in the style he reserves for important occasions, all about how the time has come for Bilbo to earn his reward. We should, of course, be reminded of the similarly impressive speech in the same style that Thorin made back in Bag End, at the solemn moment when they were about to set out on their journey. On that occasion, Bilbo had interrupted Thorin by collapsing onto the floor in helpless terror. The mere mention of the fact that some or all of them might never return had reduced poor Mr. Baggins to hysterics. Now, Thorin is not only alluding to the idea of potential danger in a distant place and at a future time, he is announcing that right now it is time for Bilbo actually to walk down the tunnel in front of them and face a live dragon. This time, Bilbo's response is merely irritation and impatience. Impatience! He parodies Thorin's style in his response, with his, O Thorin, Thrain, son, Oakenshield, may your beard grow ever longer. Part of his impatience seems to be at Thorin's reference back to the original contract, after all they've been through, but he also seems simply impatient to get started. I think I will go and have a peep at once and get it over, he says casually. He's clearly a very different hobbit than he was back in Bag End. In case we failed to make this connection, Bilbo's response prompts us to make it. 
He himself alludes to how much he's changed, noting that, "'Perhaps I've begun to trust my luck more than I used to in the old days.'" The narrator places emphasis on this comment, interrupting to add, "'He meant last spring before he left his own house, but it seemed centuries ago.'" The narrator stresses how much Bilbo has changed in that long-seeming, but really quite short, period of time. The narrator makes another similar remark almost immediately, drawing our attention to how different Bilbo is now. Already he was a very different hobbit from the one that had run out without a pocket handkerchief from Bag End long ago. The recollection of the handkerchief here is an interesting one, and the reference nudges us, I think, to look at several aspects of Bilbo's character at the same time. The narrator already, somewhat more indirectly, invited us to remember Bilbo's quivering in fear on the floor of Bag End, and to contrast that with the confidence and courage that he's showing now. This reference, the handkerchief reference, invites us to place two images next to each other. The picture of Bilbo, quite flustered and completely unprepared, running as fast as his furry feet could carry him down the lane to meet the dwarves on the one hand, and the image of Bilbo, trembling with fear but his little face set and grim as he creeps down into Smaug's lair, loosening his sword in its sheath. Here we see more than just a stiffening of his spine. We can see how his whole position has changed, his whole relationship to this adventure. It's not just something that's happening to him anymore. On that earlier occasion, we're told that, to the end of his days, Bilbo could never remember how he found himself outside and running down the lane like that. He's being rather helplessly swept away onto the road, passive despite his frantic activity. Now, he's acting on his own decision, having accepted his role and knowing full well what it means, walking deliberately towards the dragon that he knows is lying only yards in front of him. We can also see in these two pictures a change in Bilbo's larger perspective and outlook on life. What troubles him in the first instance is not even going as much as going without some of the comforts and conveniences he assumes to be essential. He is leaving his home without a hat, a walking stick, or any money, or anything that he usually took when he went out. And a few minutes later, he discovers with horror, judging by the narrator's teasing exclamation point, that he had come without a pocket handkerchief. Now, in the secret tunnel into Smaug's lair, the narrator points out that our determined, collected, and professional burglar had not had a pocket handkerchief for ages. And yet he is surviving. The handkerchief is only a token, of course, for the many other things he has done and is doing without. Just as his perspective towards food has changed, now that he knows what it's like to be really hungry, so too his attitude towards the peace and comfort of his life back in the old days has changed. Once again, however, we're reminded that the change doesn't consist of a simple transformation, of a turning away from his previous outlook entirely. Through all these changes of character and perspective, Bilbo never simply becomes 100% tookish. Right after the narrator reminds us of the pocket handkerchief, Bilbo laments that he is for it at last, and chides himself, You went and put your foot right in it that night of the party, and now you've got to pull it out and pay for it. This is the least tookish part of him speaking. The Baggins in him still has a prominent voice, in this the moment of his third and final turning point. What we see in chapter 12 is not at all the final extinction of his old Baggins self in favor of the adventurous Took. Rather, we see the final step being taken towards the marriage of the two, the ultimate mingling of Took and Baggins, poetry and prose, that gives Bilbo the strength and the firm foundation that both serve him so well in these last stages of his story. There is a time, however, when Bilbo does seem to swing fairly heavily over to the Tookish side, briefly leaving his Baggins' perspective behind him. I'm referring, of course, to his conversation with Smaug, and especially the riddling names he gives to himself. 
As Bilbo very confidently approaches the dragon's lair for the second time, the narrator notes that he was inclined to feel a bit proud of himself as he drew near the lower door. Bilbo seems to be letting himself believe that he is too much burglar for even Smaug to handle. When Bilbo starts talking about himself, identifying himself to the dragon, we can begin to see an even clearer picture of how he is imagining himself in that moment. He begins, simply enough, with oblique references to his travels and the geography he has covered. I come from under the hill, and under the hills and over the hills my paths led. He then quickly gets more heroic and mysterious, adding in a fragmentary afterthought, And through the air, I am he that walks unseen. Bilbo here is implying that he is not just a traveler, but a magical creature, one who can fly and become invisible. Since the latter of these two is obviously quite literally true, his magic self-description seems credible, as Smaug observes. The second round of names focuses on a particular portion of his adventures. I am the clue finder, the web cutter, the stinging fly. I was chosen for the lucky number. Now, I would suggest that all four of these lovely titles, as Smaug sarcastically calls them, refer, either directly or indirectly, to the encounter with the spiders in Mirkwood. Webcutter and Stinging Fly are quite obvious allusions to that episode, but notice also what they imply about Bilbo, and about his attitude towards Smaug himself. Remember how uppity he was with the spiders, and the significance of his naming of his sword. Yes, he was only a little fly, but he was a stinging fly, and no trap could hold him. I'm not saying he's threatening Smaug with these comments, but they are, if we apply them to his current situation, at least a little cheeky. Clue Finder is a bit more of a puzzle. For a long time, I assumed that this referred to Bilbo's figuring out the significance of the rune letters, his discovery of the secret door, his noticing the thrush knocking, and all that. I still think that it can be taken as a reference to those things, but now I have another theory which I think is clearer and more likely. The word clue originally meant a ball of string. The Greek hero Theseus famously found his way out of the labyrinth in Crete by bringing a clue of thread with him. It's this use of a clue in the Theseus story that led to the modern metaphorical use of the word clue, something that you follow to find the way out of a puzzling problem or situation. I believe that when Bilbo calls himself the clue finder, Tolkien was not originally using that word in the modern sense, but in its older sense, referring to a ball of string. But wait, you were saying, where the heck does Bilbo find a ball of string? Did I miss that part? For the clue to this puzzle, we have to go back to Tolkien's manuscript drafts of The Hobbit. In the first manuscript draft, before Tolkien even typed up the book to send to his publisher, he included an important element in the spider encounter that he later cut out from the story entirely. In the original draft, when Bilbo killed the first spider, he found the rest of the colony not by luck, but by winding up a line of thick spider thread that the first spider had left behind it. Bilbo uses this ball of thread, this clue, not only to find the colony and rescue his friends, but also to find their way back to the path afterwards, Theseus-style. Tolkien later rewrote this chapter and cut the ball of spider thread out prior to the publication of the first edition, but Bilbo's first identification of himself to Smaug as the clue finder comes later on in the same manuscript that contains the spider clue passage. I think that Tolkien probably kept this riddling name in the published version even after he cut the actual clue-finding episode because of the ways in which clue can still be relevantly understood in its more modern sense, as I mentioned earlier. In the original manuscript, however, it seems clear that Bilbo is referring to another element in his heroics in Mirkwood, fittingly grouped with web-cutter and stinging fly.
By the way, if you're interested in learning more about the original manuscript of The Hobbit and how Tolkien's ideas changed and were revised, you simply must check out John Ratliff's History of The Hobbit, which contains everything you might want to know on the subject. I've mentioned it before, but it is an absolutely indispensable book for serious students of The Hobbit, and I can't recommend it enough. Anyway, returning to Bilbo's second set of names, after the three names which point to his heroics in the spider colony, he adds, I was chosen for the lucky number. This also fits the spider context, for that's the first time the dwarves' apparent triskaidekaphobia pays off. Triskaidekaphobia is fear of the number 13, by the way. Awesome word. Anyway, when the dwarves are captured by the spiders, and then again by the elves immediately afterwards, they are indeed lucky that they included one other person in their company. Had the thirteen dwarves been alone on the trip, they wouldn't have escaped either time, but since they brought along a lucky number, and an unusually lucky one at that, they escaped. In other words, all four of Bilbo's second set of names for himself emphasize his own importance to the quest, even his own heroism. Having established himself as a great traveler with mysterious powers, he now presents himself as the resourceful hero without whom his companions would never have survived. This latter is true enough, but it's interesting to see how Bilbo is progressively puffing himself up here. The third set of names continues in the same vein. I am he that buries his friends alive, and drowns them, and draws them alive again from the water. Now he has moved on from his spider rescue feat to his elf rescue feat. His riddling comparison of what he did with the barrels, to burial and drowning and then resurrection, make his actions seem not only resourceful, but downright miraculous. Bilbo has not only rescued his friends, it's like he's brought them back from the dead. Once again, he implies to the dragon that he is a magical creature of unknown and mysterious powers, not to mention rather unpredictable behavior. The reference to burying alive, ironically, serves not only as a reference back to the barrels, but an anticipation of what's about to happen. At the end of this same chapter, when Smaug is sneaking around to try to find the entrance to the secret tunnel, Bilbo convinces the dwarves to all come into the tunnel and close the door behind them, shutting them into the mountain and effectively burying them alive. In any case, the end of this set moves in a different direction, and it's in some sense an even more surprising one. I came from the end of a bag, but no bag went over me, he says. Once more, Bilbo alludes to a time when all the dwarves were captured and he himself escaped. The troll incident, when the dwarves were caught in sacks. The main point of this remark, however, is the pun between the bagging of the dwarves by the trolls and the name of Bilbo's own house, Bag End. And what I think is most interesting here is the parallel that Bilbo implies, perhaps unintentionally, between them. The bags were the trolls' instruments of imprisonment. By characterizing his departure from his home as coming from the end of a bag, Bilbo is implicitly comparing his leaving home to an escape from imprisonment. Both halves of this bag comment emphasize his not being in a bag, and thus, in a punning and indirect way, deny his own name, Baggins, and his quieter nature. I'm not, of course, suggesting that deep down Bilbo feels his Baggins' life to be a prison. We've seen just a little while ago, during Bilbo's momentous first descent into Smaug's lair, that he still looks back on that world with longing. But in this moment, when he is constructing for himself in riddles this bold, adventurous, important, and even magical identity, Bilbo is perhaps unconsciously distancing himself from his respectable hobbit world. This moment, when he is engaging in confident and suave repartee with the dragon, is perhaps Bilbo's most fully tookish moment in the entire book. The fourth and last set of names Bilbo gives himself starts comparatively modestly, emphasizing his importance and consequence only by association with the unusual and remarkable people he's met in his journey, calling himself the friend of bears and the guest of eagles. 
From there, however, Bilbo moves into the final group of names that contains his fatal slip. I am Ringwinner and Luckwearer, and I am Barrel Rider. The third is the one that he bitterly regrets afterwards, the comment that leads to, or at least accelerates, the destruction of Lake Town. It is clearly no coincidence that this slip comes when he is beginning to be pleased with his riddling, when he is feeling most confident. The other two names he combines with Barrel Rider also show this same dangerous level of confidence. In calling himself Ringwinner, he is clearly straining the truth. As I mentioned in Chapter 5, he did literally win the ring from Gollum in the first edition of the book, at least in a sense. Gollum does put the ring, the present, up as a prize if he wins the riddle game. Nevertheless, even in the first edition, and much more in the revised edition, Bilbo is straining a point here. His discovery of the ring was by pure luck in the dark. His defeat of Gollum in the riddle contest was thrice over a result of mere luck. By taking credit for winning the ring, and then calling himself luck-wearer, as if his luck were itself a possession or power of his, he's actually saying a lot. We've seen how important, and increasingly important, a role luck has played throughout this story, and even how the luck of Thorin's party has indeed seemed to focus on Bilbo. I've suggested already that it's beginning to look like there's some kind of cosmic conspiracy in favor of the quest of Bilbo and the dwarves. In this moment, as Bilbo is feeling pleased with himself and putting the final touches on this glorious and splendidly fantastical identity he has constructed for himself, he goes beyond boasting about his legitimately heroic actions and begins to suggest a more transcendent importance for himself. And it just so happens that that's the moment when he screws up. Even before Bilbo starts regretting his reference to barrels, he is jarred out of his new and cocky perspective by a sharp dose of terror and pain. We are reminded as he leaves that he had been feeling rather pleased with the cleverness of his conversation with Smaug, just as he was when he made his fateful barrel-rider comment, confident in his self-constructed identity as the fortunate, competent, and heroic adventurer who can banter with dragons and even taunt them as he does in his parting shot. But when Bilbo is sprinting up the tunnel in great pain and fear, with the dragon's fire burning the skin on the back of his head and his heels quite badly, he is shaken into better sense. Bilbo's flirtation with a fully transformed adventurous identity is over, and his more sensible Baggins-ish perspective reasserts itself. Bilbo may be wrong to suggest that the luck that's been with them, and with him in particular, is an actual possession of his own, a cloak or mantle that he wears, but he certainly does not seem wrong to suggest that there is indeed something quite special going on in this quest. You may recall that back in Lecture 2, I talked about the astonishing series of coincidences that led to Thorin's reading of the secret moon letters on Thor's map. The dwarves happened to bring the map to Elrond on Midsummer's Eve, rather than any of the other days they were there, and he happened to hold the map up to the crescent moon to discover that there were runes there that could only be revealed when the moon was in that particular phase and on that particular day of the year. That alone suggests that there is more than mere chance operating here, as the odds against that series of events are enormous. But further, it gives Thorin's quest the air of destiny, and Thor's writing of the runes a status near to that of prophecy. The prophetic nature of the rune message is confirmed by the text of the message itself. Stand by the grey stone when the thrush knocks, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. These runes don't spell out a series of instructions for how to open the door, such as tap this particular brick in the wall and the door will open, for example. Notice that almost this whole passage gives statements of fact about the future. It's a prediction. On the day when the secret door will open, several things are predicted to occur. It will be Durin's day. A thrush will knock. The last light of the setting sun will shine upon the keyhole. 
there's only one piece of instruction, one element in the imperative mood. Stand by the grey stone. The ones who fulfill this prophecy only have to stand in the right place at the right time, and the door will be revealed, and will open if they have the key. This sense that there is something magical, something supernatural about the opening of the secret door is confirmed when it actually happens. On the morning of Durin's day, though the dwarves all seem to have forgotten about the significance of the last day of autumn when they're actually there on the mountainside, Bilbo has a queer feeling that he was waiting for something. This feeling seems to lead him to anticipate something magical, even a kind of intervention in their quest. Perhaps the wizard will suddenly come back today, he thinks. When he hears the thrush knocking snails against the grey stone, Bilbo remembers the runes and recognizes the sign, and it's Bilbo who fulfills the instructions in the moon letters and stands by the stone. The covering of the sun with clouds, and the unlikely chance of the one ray of sunlight escaping the clouds like a finger to point to the keyhole, emphasizes again that this is not simply a natural event. The thrush watches the scene from a high perch with beady eyes and head cocked on one side, and he gave a sudden trill at the moment the prophecy is fulfilled. The thrush doesn't seem to be just responding to what it's seeing in front of it. A shaft of light? It's apparently natural feeding served as the sign of the imminent revelation of the keyhole, foretold in the runes. Now it serves as the herald of the prophecy's fulfillment. When Thorin explains later on that the thrush is one of an ancient breed and a long-lived and magical race, we might find its role in the fulfillment of the keyhole prophecy somewhat less surprising. Although Bilbo briefly loses his perspective on this while talking to Smaug, it seems that he is an important but small player in a much larger story, a story being orchestrated by greater powers and deeper magic. That's all for now. In the next lecture, we'll look at chapters 14 to 16, focusing in particular on the big unexpected party that breaks out at the end of the quest. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.